0: The love will be both of me if it love. Good morning, everybody. Uh, So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to everyone watching and listening online, whether you're on a plane or a train or you're up in Port Perry. We're so glad that you're joining us here today. Well, what a ride we have been on as a community. As we come to the end of part one out of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to take a breathing moment next week, we're going to have a vision Sunday, and then we're going to go into Christmas. Uh, I want to return, though, to the beginning of the series Last year, as I shared with you, we took time before Jesus and said to him directly, Jesus, what do you want us to hear as a church? What do you want to do among us? What is the direction you have for this church that you own in this coming year? And as I shared in September, as we began to pray and we emerged from those times of listening, there was one word that kept coming stronger and stronger, and it was the word obedience. Now, the word, when it was given to us, was not harsh. It was not rebuke. It was not condemnation. It was invitational. There was a grand growing sense that for this year, for this season, God was calling us as a community into an inward obedience in a culture that is decidedly going away from that. There was an invitation for holiness among us, which always leads to freedom. And that is actually why, as our creative community started talking about this, we chose pilgrims and pioneers. Let me again read the evocative and revolutionary language we scripted around this year's theme We are pilgrims on a journey. A holy journey seeking the kingdom, we are pioneers taking new ground given to us under the authority of Jesus, a representation of the kingdom, changing culture, living differently, exposing darkness, radiating light. We will not as Christians settle for what is just common or just good. Our standard is righteousness, our standard is love, our standard is purity, holiness, consecration, and obedience. And as we wrestled down with these words and we asked the question about obedience and we began to walk into this, we started asking this question, so how do you do this where we live? How in the world do we do this in Durham, in our families, in the GTA, six million people, the most multicultural city on earth, almost 300 heart languages are spoken in our great city every day, sexually diverse in every direction. Every religion on earth is here among us. How do we truly pioneer and pilgrim as we live in this great city with all the good and all the bad, with blessing and temptation? How do we be in Toronto but not fully of Toronto? How can we be a blessing and still stand for truth and a graceful? And as we began to dive into 1 Corinthians, we have been given a crystal clear picture of what it looks like to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus in a grand multicultural, pluralistic, sexually diverse urban center. Corinth and Toronto are almost ancient and modern parallels. Now, if you've been with us during this whole series, so much has been talked about so far. But again, as we get into chapter 6, the second half, Paul chooses again to speak, and he does not mince words, and he begins by saying, look, God loves us so much, and God loves you so much. And actually, I, he's writing to this church, I love you as a pastor also. But, uh, but another issue has come up. That if we can just talk through this issue, I think it's going to let us have a greater conversation for freedom and holiness and, and the move of the Spirit among us. He said, so here's my question for you. He says, why are you going out and paying for sex? You're Christians, right? And you think that paying for sex is okay? And, and you don't think it's wrong to use men or women or children made in the image of God sexually? And, and you actually don't think Jesus has a view on this? Now, as we've been learning in this series, Corinth was famous for its sex life. Actually, during Roman times, I discovered this week, the term to Corinthianize was slang across the whole Roman Empire for going out and having casual sex. Corinth was so connected to fornication that it was the name everyone used when they went out and had fun. Actually, the phrase Corinthian girl was what everyone called prostitutes across the whole Roman Empire. But listen to the historical context a little bit more before we dive into the passage. One scholar that I read this week reminded me that in Corinth at this time... The temple of Aphrodite, which was near the middle of the city, employed a thousand sex trade workers. And the idea was to go and worship Aphrodite, you would have sex with one of these prostitutes. And so there was a thousand people involved religiously and sexually. But not only that, many traditions in Corinth were steeped in lewd sexual behavior. One such custom I learned about this week was called the toga viril. This was an event that marked a youth's entrance into manhood. This was the rite of passage to manhood in this city. An 18-year-old would be invited to a dinner party by his probably father and male friends. And he would be introduced to what every single male in that city had access to since their 18th birthday. And in that invitation, think about this. This is how you become a man in this culture. He would be given too much alcohol, get drunk out of his mind. He would be given unbelievably good food. He'd commit gluttony. He'd be given a prostitute. And so in one sitting, he could fulfill all of his physical appetites and that is how someone became a man in that city. So, sex with a wife, if you were a man, was about making kids. It was about bearing heirs. Marriage was much more political and strategic and social alliance based, but visiting sex trade workers is how you had fun and let loose. Sex outside of marriage was normal, adultery was normal, uh, sexual experiences in any direction were normal, it was culturally accepted. And never forget that prostitution is one of the most casual sexual relationships on earth. Even worse, sex for hire epitomizes the abuse of human beings. There is no love for people when you do this. There's no love for those. You're not thinking this person is made in the image of God and and is worthy of life. There's no care or concern for the greater good. There's just concern for your own lust. Now, Paul, as we've been journeying, has brought up sexual struggle and sin at least twice, but he speaks to the issue again. But unlike the other times, he does not start by saying, what in the world are you doing as Christians? He does something so much more important. He chooses to confront the wrong thinking that has led to the wrong behavior. He confronts what I call the hijacking of grace to get away with sin. William Barclay, who was a famous commentator, wrote these amazing words, the great fact of the Christian faith is not that it makes a person free to sin, but that it makes a person free not to sin. But actually, in the Corinthian church, they had said the reverse. We dive in like this in 1 Corinthians 6.12. Here's what the church was saying to Paul. I have the right to do anything, they said. And Paul responds, but not everything is beneficial. They say back to Paul, but I have the right to do anything. And he responds, but I will not be mastered by anything. I have the right to do anything became the new slogan and the new cry of Christians in Corinth. Because of Jesus, I am free. Because of Jesus, I am free of all inhibitions. I am free of all restraints. I have become progressive because of Jesus. Because Jesus took the bullet, and because Jesus dealt with sin, and because I've experienced grace, and because Jesus took God the Father's appropriate wrath, now I can live with the benefits of the cross, but not have the cross mark my life. In Jesus' name, we get our own compass. In Jesus' name, I get my own understanding. It's like Siri tells me what I want and where I want, because it's called freedom. Freedom in Jesus, in this moment, is being used as an excuse to indulge in all sorts of sins, including paying for sex. And Paul comes along writing to this church and says, okay, I actually hear what you're saying, but you know this is wrong. Let's just start here. You keep saying to me that I am free in Jesus. So in other words, Christian freedom means I can do anything I want, but, but I tell you we cannot. None of us as Christians may be mastered by anything except Jesus. I will not be owned by anything, he says. Just because God created something and it is good and it's allowed and it's enjoyable does not mean it cannot be abused or become an idol or it actually can turn around and owns us. See, Paul is about to say these words. Sex is good. Sex is powerful. Sex is wonderful. Sex is great. Sex is not dirty. Sex is not a result of the fall, but sex can actually move from pleasure and procreation to control. Sex can become a dictator that controls your life and your thoughts and your actions. And all of us sitting in this room and everyone up in Port Perry and all of us listening online know that sex and mishandling of sexuality can bring pain, destruction, fear, shame, and guilt. The good can produce the very bad if misused. And not only is Paul saying you are actually misusing Jesus' death to set you free from inhibition, and he's saying that's so ludicrous because Jesus actually died to set you free from these sins. He actually gets almost frustrated in the passage, and he says this, I am so tired of that little other saying that you keep throwing into my face, and you keep posting online to justify your sin. Here's what the Corinthian church used to chant all the time in their services. Food for the stomach, and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Okay, now we see the power of Corinth. And not just the power of the city. Now we see the power of pagan, pagan philosophy taking deep root, deeper root in a Christian's mind than the scriptures. See, the prevailing belief that has roots in Plato was it does not matter what you do with your body because your soul matters, your spiritual life matters, your essence matters. The physical doesn't matter. You should divorce the physical from your essence. See, the physical is a prison. Your body is bad and God will destroy all of that in the new heavens and the new earth. So who cares what you do with food and who cares what you do with your body sexually? Food and sex are about this life. They have nothing to do with the next life. So go ahead and sleep around. Go to Mandarin and hit the buffet five times in one sitting and don't even think about it. It's okay that you get drunk on Friday nights. God doesn't care about this stuff. He only cares about your soul. God's going to destroy all physical matter. And Paul comes along and says, that is the most unholy, anti-Christian view ever produced in a Christian church. He says the body absolutely matters. The very first verse in the Bible says, and God created, the first two verses, and God created the heavens and the earth. Physical and spiritual realities make up, capital R, reality reality. And God said that creation was very good. And just like all of creation that was physical and spiritual, we as human beings actually have both polarities. We are physical, and yet we have a soul, and yet we are not segmented or separated. We are one thing, and God called that very good. Think about what we're about to celebrate in the next few weeks at Christmas. When God came, he took on what? Flesh, the incarnation, and that enforces again the idea that there is no separation between physical and spiritual. Jesus' best friend, John... When he was years later writing after Jesus' resurrection, in First John 1:1, speaking about Jesus said, "Look, we heard him, we saw him with our eyes, and we looked at him, and our hands touched him." John was saying, "Look, Jesus was no illusion. There was no physical, bad and spiritual good split." And by the way, that is why at Easter, we as Christians fundamentally proclaim that Jesus' resurrection was not spiritual. It was a physical resurrection. Jesus really came back from the dead. He's no ghost. He came back with flesh. Oh, and what's the end of the story? If you go to the end of the Bible, what does the end of the story say? When Jesus returns, he's going to come back and restore all of creation, and he is going to call them the new heavens and the what? The new earth. There is no separation between physical and spiritual. As one scholar wrote, heaven and earth are the polarities. They designate two poles of one material reality, neither which can exist without the other, like north and south, which hold together everything between them. So Paul comes along and he says to this church that's chanting, you can do whatever you want with your body and sleep around and get drunk and commit gluttony because God doesn't care. He says, no, actually God deeply cares about your personal body. And it actually does matter what you do with your body. He says, so let's have the chat. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for Jesus and Jesus for the body. Paul says our bodies are for and our own, and all of what we do is for Jesus. So you cannot just do what you want with your body. So, so don't think that Jesus up in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father is okay with what you're doing. Actually, sexual immorality is not allowed to be given into or participated by the Christian community. Now we found this out two or three times. Let me do this again because it's so important because there's seekers here today and skeptics and new believers and old believers and all across the map. Look. When you see the phrase sexual immorality in the New Testament, it is a catch-all phrase used by Orthodox Jews to summarize all the sexual acts the Old Testament forbids. And so if you look it up in the dictionary, here's what's included on this list. And it's the word porneia in Greek where we get our modern word pornography run from. And so in that list, when, when, a, when an Orthodox Jew would say sexual immorality, here's the list in their minds. Incest, premarital sex, adultery, One night stands, same-sex activity, prostitution, molestation, bestiality, orgies, and the like are all connected to this idea for Jews. And for the biblical writers, if you read from the beginning to the end, the sexual starting point is Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. So Paul comes along and says, look, I am so tired of your little slogans and your little tweets and your cool, pithy memes, but they're not just wrong. They are connected to something that is fundamentally unchristian. He says, let me make the connection for you today by his power god the father raised jesus from the dead and he is going to raise us also the resurrection of jesus if you've been in church for years lean in at this moment the resurrection of jesus physically from the dead proves the body matters proves God is actually not done with you, with us, proves your body will last forever, not just your soul. Your body has been stamped for resurrection. It is part of God's plan to make all things right. We don't confess as Christians the immortality of the soul. We we confess the foreverness of the whole person. That is why for 2,000 years or 1,800 years, Christians have confessed the old statement out of the Apostles' Creed. We believe in the resurrection of the body and life ever lasting and we all said by the way amen so paul now brings it all home and says do you not know that our bodies your bodies our physical bodies are members of the messiah jesus himself shall i then take a member of christ and unite them with a prostitute never so christians are going around in this church 2000 years ago saying well we're so spiritual and we've got grace upon grace and we've got, we're on another spiritual plane because we can speak in tongues and we can heal. And, and our Holy Spirit, the walk with the Holy Spirit, is never affected with what we do with alcohol or food or sex. God doesn't even care about how I have sex or with whom. God doesn't even care that I'm having sex with a sex trade worker that's connected to actually a demon and false god and I'm doing it on their temple grounds to worship. God doesn't care. And Paul comes around and says, you're joking me, Right? That's Corinth talking. That's Toronto talking. That's not the Trinity talking. Paul says we are literally, lean in, we are literally, we are actually united with Jesus. Our literal bodies are members of Christ. And every time we sexually do stuff, the Bible says no to in any direction. We are uniting Jesus with that act, with that person, with that image, When you have sex, he's saying, in this context, with a religious prostitute, you're uniting the Lord Jesus Christ with that act. Never, he says, God forbid the physical body counts for Jesus. Do you not know, verse 16, that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said in the book of Genesis, the two shall become one flesh. Now, this is critical. See, if you look very carefully, Jesus, Moses, the author of Hebrews, Paul, Peter, Jude, all of them always start a conversation about sex back in Genesis. He, they root the conversation back in creation, back to the designer's plan, and he quotes this, the two become one flesh. Let me read this for you, maybe for the first time or for the hundredth time. Genesis one twenty-seven: God created humans in his own image. In his image, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. On the sixth day of creation, God creates humans in his image. We are the only creatures in all the vast, beautiful, diverse creation that can know God, walk with God, and actually have a relationship with God. But notice, unlike our creator, people have sexual differentiation. God creates two types of us, male and female. God creates, lean in please, gender. Gender is not socially constructed. Gender is God-given. It is God's want. It is God's idea. It is the creator's expression. Now later in the second chapter, we read that this unity and diversity thing is to work itself out this way in Genesis 2.24. And remember, Paul has all of this in his mind when he's addressing the sexual issue in Corinth. Uh, Genesis 2.24, this is why a man leaves his mom and dad and becomes united, has sex with his wife, and the two become, there's the connection, one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So the Hebrew sense of this, and this is critical, is that sex, the act of sex, was happening before sin was around. Sex actually is good. Sex did not produce the fall, nor is it part of the fall. It's happening before the fall. It was good for love. It was given to bond with each other, and it gave the power for procreation. But notice that phrase, one flesh. That is what Paul chose specifically here for a reason. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, the LXX, the phrase is the two will share one psyche. Sex binds us to another person, sex blends us, it connects us at the root of who we are. Sex is not just instinct, and sex is not just an act. See, Paul is already beginning to show his cards. He's concluding that Adam and Eve are the model. This is what is natural according to the creator's order. Marriage reflects the image of God. Now, everyone's thinking caps on because we're going to go to a place most don't. Like the Trinity, who is God himself, when a husband and a wife, mutually consenting, have sex with each other, they become one flesh. And yet they remain two distinct individuals. They share this bonding, this psyche, this one essence, and yet they're two persons. That is why according to scripture, not according to our culture, not according to some of you, not according to many others, but according to scripture in the biblical worldview, marriage in the Bible is held so unbelievably highly, and that is why sex is amazing and beautiful and cannot be changed in nature. By changing the nature and place of sex, we stop reflecting the God and the essence we know. For Christians that personally know God, we are not allowed to do this. Two people remain different and share one essence. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons in the Godhead sharing one essence. Do you see the connection to the DNA of God and how he's instituted sex on earth? Now, the other amazing thing about Genesis is it's not that it just shares that there's one essence going on. It's the great, unbelievable, almost unreachable phrase. They were naked and felt no shame. I want you to sit with that for a bit. Can you imagine a world where you could walk around naked and not feel any shame? Like, think about the power of that. Adam and Eve are with each other. They're naked, which is implying they're doing things with each other, by the way. No shame, no guilt, no self-hate, no feeling of inadequacy, no comparison, nothing between them. Physically, emotionally, sexually, spiritually connected. They walked with God, uninterrupted relationship. They talked to God, not about God, and there was peace. Sex and sexuality had never been misused. It had never actually produced regret, ga- guilt, or shame. It had never actually been touched by sin. When sin walks in, it led us to sexual usury, sexual violence, sexual selflessness, lust over love, broken hearts, broken bodies. And, and let me just say this bluntly. The sexual revolution in every generation promises freedom, but it's always bitter fruit in the end. One great ethicist wrote these words, there is more to sex than meets the eye or excites the genitals. There's no such thing as casual casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. No one can go to bed with someone and leave his or her, her soul parked outside. One flesh, one psyche, one essence, one bonding. And Paul comes along to the Christian community and says, there is so much at stake. See, uh, how we do this is connected to worship, connected to obedience, connected to lordship, connected to life change. And by the way, like I said last week about lawsuits and money, if the gospel does not impact how we use each other and love each other sexually, then the culture will say your gospel has no power because if it cannot change how you deal with money and relationships and sex, then you are no different than us. So as followers of Jesus, we choose not to unite ourselves to any person or thing, but only do what is allowed in a God-given marriage context. Why? And then Paul says it in verse 17. Whoever is united with Jesus is one with him in spirit. Porneia, sexual immorality, is not possible because the believer's body already is connected to Jesus himself. Jesus owns us, and actually by Jesus's own resurrection and our coming resurrection, because the Holy Spirit is in us, actually we know this body has incredible value and worth, and it has been redeemed, so we do not misuse it. So Paul says, when you're confronted with porneia, when you're confronted with doing all sorts of things in all sorts of directions which your body wants to do and you want to do and the culture says is fine as a follower of Jesus Christ. Remember, this is written to Christians. What are we commanded to do as Christians who love Jesus and have experienced the love of God and the mercy of God? He says these simple things. You run for your life. You flee. You flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside their body. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. He says you run, you get out, you don't expose yourself. You actually take dramatic measures. If honestly you cannot control a porn problem, then you take a dra- dramatic measure and you don't have a phone like this anymore. You get a flip phone and everyone's going to say, why do you have a flip phone? And you're going to say, because I can't handle it. If you are sexually attracted to someone who's not your husband or wife, and you know you're going to fall from them, Paul says you break off the relationship and you say to them, no, really, for real, for real, it's me, not you. You run. You make a dramatic decision and say, I am not going to do this. Why? Paul says this type of sin affects us like all the other. It attacks our souls and our bodies that have so much value. Now, some of you are saying, that's not true, John. Paul obviously didn't get it. What about self-mutilation? That hurts the body. What about gluttony? What about getting drunk? What about suicide? Paul says, yes, of course they all hurt your body. But here's the difference. Sex brings all of you to the table. Now Paul seals the deal and brings home why sexual sin has to be dealt with in the church. Do you not know that your bodies, notice, not your souls, not your essence, your bodies, are the temples of the Holy Spirit of God, who is actually in you right now, who you have received from God. You are not your own. I've preached this many times before. Let me do it again. We need to understand the profundity, the revolutionary style of this. Remember, when Paul is writing this, there's a good chance that the actual temple in Jerusalem is still being used by Jews to worship God. And this Orthodox Jew named Paul is saying, that is now irrelevant... Because now the Spirit of God has chosen to live, possess, dwell. He has chosen to house himself in this very mediocre body and in yours. He says, we've replaced Moses' tabernacle where Moses used to meet with Yahweh like a friend meets with a friend. We have actually replaced the temple of Solomon where the glory of God fell and all the priests fell down in 2 Chronicles 5. We have replaced Herod's great temple and God has decided to mingle with human beings and live in them. And no other religion on earth would dare say such a thing. Now here's the point. As Christians, we fall hard here. And here's the implication that Paul is bringing home. We have already experienced the love of God. We are married to Jesus. That is, we are in covenant with Jesus. We have confessed him as Savior and Lord. We all have wedding rings on to Jesus. And so how we think and how we act with our bodies matter. Now, I'm not talking about struggling with sin, nor is Paul. I'm not talking about temptation or being inclined one sexual way or another. Struggle orientation and temptation is never the final issue for a follower of Jesus. It is lordship. It is when we justify, it is when we affirm, it is when when we act out sexually against what the Bible is crystal clear about and believe it's okay between me and God. It's okay that actually I'm fine with Jesus because of grace even though I'm doing all this stuff. Jesus and I are fine even though I'm saying all my friends can keep doing that and it's not wrong. I'm talking about, Paul's talking about justifying sexual acts that Jesus, our King, and by the way, our Creator, has actually forbidden us from. In other words, if you're a Christian here today, we may never justify for our culture, ourselves, or others any act the Bible says no to. Now, you will know that you're crossing into the line of compromise when you start saying things like this or believing them, God would never deny my natural desires, I don't have to explain myself to you or anyone else. God made me this way. As long as we're consenting, it's okay. If it doesn't any hurt anyone, who cares? All that thinking is Corinth. All that thinking is Toronto. It's not the kingdom. For any person in this room, any person up in Port Perry, any person who's watching online, who claims Jesus as Savior and Lord, who given themselves willingly to Jesus to be our king, then you can never hold that view ever again. That's called syncretism. It's saying what we want, what we desire, what we're born towards, what our culture says has more power than what God has said in the end. For a Christian, this is a matter of worship, truth, authority, and humility. The world can say we can do what we want, when we want, but as followers of Jesus, we actually don't own ourselves anymore. Chastity, if needed, is actually our joyful calling. Chastity is our suffering for and with Jesus. It is how we say yes to Jesus and no to our wants. That he's asked us not to practice. And if we are married, that is the only place we're allowed to practice. Paul says, let's not just remind ourselves that we're the actual temples of God. Let me remind you, he says, of the price of freedom that heaven paid so you could be free in the first place. He says, you were bought at a price. Honor God with your bodies because of that. You know, that word bought is very important. If you're taking notes this morning, it is connected to the word redemption. It's almost exclusively used in ancient times for slave markets. And what this means is that someone would walk into a slave market, and remember, slaves have no freedom. And someone walks in and buys them out, redeems them, pays the price so they can get out of the slave market. And the scriptures are clear that every human being on earth was enslaved in a slave market to Satan, sin, and death and could do nothing about it. And Jesus, by his death and resurrection, walked into the slave market and said, I've paid the price and now I want to take that person out. Anyone want to say amen to that, by the way? But here's the thing that Christians miss in the West. That doesn't mean now you walk out of the slave market and you're free. You have a new owner. You move from Satan being your king and death being your king and sin being your king to Jesus being you never own you, ever. So Jesus comes along and says, no, no, I've bought you out and now you're my slave, but here's the difference. I am a good, loving father and I'm a great master and I'll lead you better than you would and definitely better than those did. He says, so because that is true, because you are the temple and you've been bought and because of the resurrection of Jesus, you honor God with your body. If you're a Christian, you don't own yourself. Honor God with your body. Worship God with your body. See, our, mad, our bodies matter. Jesus in the scriptures do not say your body is nothing. He does not say it traps your real self. You are your body and you, your body are you. When you start hearing in the church or in culture, your body's not connected to your soul, the body's not connected to your mind or psyche, when you think you're one thing and the body is another, that is pagan, fundamentally pagan idealism. It rejects resurrection. Our bodies are not temporary, they're eternal. So here's the question this morning. With such a challenging part of scripture, what do we do? See, God now is confronting how we think, how we act, and what we justify. God's lines are clear. The nature of true Christian freedom is now clear. So what do we do? Well, here's the first thing we all need to hear again. Sexual sin is not the greatest sin. It's not the most monstrous sin. It's not the most mysterious sin. It's not the unforgivable sin. And so let's not make it bigger than it is. Sin is sin is sin. We're all broken. We're all messed up in here. So thank God for Jesus's grace. Agreed? Yeah. Yeah. But let's not also say that our Creator doesn't have the right to have the last say. The Scriptures don't mince words. It's clear about gender, body, sex, and life. The West is now reverting to a full pagan understanding of sexuality, and in the middle of this grand change, in this consuming moment, we as Christians, no matter the cost, are called to live under the love of God and obey the will of God. What is God saying to us together And actually, what is he saying to us personally? Well, first of all, this passage actually does something that most of us never catch or expect. This passage actually reminds every single one of us sitting here today and listening online why you are loved and why you matter. I don't want you to think about anyone else right now. I want you to think about yourself. Can you do that? You're like, no problem, do it all the time. Okay, (laughs) think about yourself. I want you to think about your body this morning. You're like, I didn't expect to hear that in church. Think about it. Every single one of us has body issues in this room, right? We wonder, too short, too fat, too small, too big, fill in the gaps. We wonder if we matter. We all struggle with our body. We wonder if we have worth. And then we come to church and hear that Jesus loves us. But what we miss is the connection where Jesus loves you, all of you, so much that he died, not just to save your soul, but to save you. That through Jesus' resurrection, he's going to resurrect all of you, which means so much of the fear sitting in this church and insecurity and hatred and self-loathing have already been overcome by his love. All of you is going to be resurrected. When I meet you in the new heavens and the new earth, I'm going to recognize you as you. Let the love and power of this reorder the way you start seeing yourself even physically. He died, Jesus died to resurrect all of you. So let his power have more power than your issues, more power than what our culture is saying, more power than what the current view of beauty is, No, more power than how, how young or old, fat or thin you are. See, there is an untapped freedom and an untapped power here. Let the not yet, which is resurrection, wash over your now so you can see value and beauty and see love sweep away fear, insecurity and self-concern and self-hate the resurrection of Jesus affirms why we are really beautiful see we watch these ads on television right with all different different styles and, and sizes of people and they say oh we're all beautiful and we all watch the TV going yeah I want that to be true but I don't believe it an ad won't change how we view ourselves physically the resurrection has the power to really do that we don't have an ad we have a resurrected savior And so what we need to start saying is when you step in front of the mirror with all your stuff, you say, Jesus wants to resurrect this. And I've got value the world will never understand. That's the connection that's been lost. But here's the second thing. As I was praying this week and wrestling through this week and said, Jesus, what do you want to say to the community? He came close and said, you thank them. So what do you mean, Jesus? He says, there are many in your congregation that have remained faithful to me In a hookup culture, they're still single and they're suffering. Others have inclinations they've said no to, though the culture says yes, and I'm supposed to stand here as a representative of Jesus and say, and I have no clue who you are, the Lord Jesus Christ is watching your suffering and he thanks you for your faithfulness and the reward you will be given in the new heavens and the new earth will actually make all your suffering pale. He is worthy of your worship and he is giving you worth for your worship to him. He's speaking to you. You remain faithful. Some of you desperately need to hear this this morning because you're looking around and saying, it's so hard, and Jesus says, I know. I understand what it means to suffer. Keep doing it. There is eternal reward. Here's the third thing. Jesus comes close and he says, you know why I confront you, right? Because I want you to be free. I do all of this. I was thinking about when I was driving into church this morning, the amazing truth, how Jesus loved healing people. Have you thought about that lately? He couldn't get enough of walking into situations. Do you know in his culture, there was one group you were never allowed to touch. It was lepers. What did he do? He just hugged them all the time. There was nothing dirty enough, gross enough, dangerous enough that he would not touch because he was bringing the new heavens and the new earth into the now. Shalom, peace, restoration, salvation, and hope. So he comes and he says this morning, catch this. He says, actually, I'm confronting a lot of you this morning so you can be free. Many of us in this church need to repent. We need to call sin, sin. We need to admit that we have crossed lines personally or in public or in private and we have been told that Jesus says no and we have said yes. We need to humbly admit our sexual sin. We need to bring all our shame and all our guilt and all our pornea to Jesus and to each other. Jesus' work and love, some of you are shutting down right now. Don't do that. Don't do it. Guilt and shame and fear cannot be strong enough in this room. Jesus' work is bigger than our mistakes. Jesus' work is stronger than our past. Jesus' work is more healing than our shame. It is stronger than our guilt. He has already taken everything that we have done sexually and everything that has been done to us sexually on his body 2,000 years ago and declared it is finished. He is the only one that has the power to restore that phrase that is impossible and you can walk naked and have no shame. So if you've crossed the line sexually, 80 years ago, or yesterday, you're with yourself or others, here's what you need to do at this moment, right now, like literally at this moment. Poor Perry, I hope you're listening. Everyone online. You need to confess it to Jesus right now. You need to close your eyes, and you need to tell Jesus in detail what you've done. Do you know how Christians hide from Jesus? They pray in generalities. Lord, I have a lust problem. He says, I already know. Could you tell me exactly what you did? He wants the triple X version for a reason because he wants no power anymore in that thing. You need to go to him right now. If this is you, honestly, bow your head and start doing this. Say, I slept with this person when I was 15. I've never talked about this 50 years ago. I did this. I had an affair. I went in the barn and did this. I've been watching this porn. Like, tell him in detail right now, Jesus, this is what I have done. And as you're doing this, by the way, you should stop listening to me now if you're doing this, other than this verse. First John 1 nine: if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins, and He will purify us from all unrighteousness. There is nothing dirty enough or more powerful than the work of Jesus. So you bring it all to the table right now. And if you're like doing the North American thing, if I bow my head, someone's going to look at me, who cares? Be free? Bow your head down and say, Jesus, I've done this. And for some of you who are older, you need to do this because this has rotted your soul, though you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years. It's time. Just tell them right now. Start telling them. Now, some people are doing this here and some are doing it online. I need to speak to another group of you. There's a group of you saying, oh, John, I want to do this. I want to have this conversation with Jesus, but it is so powerful and so painful or I actually so don't want to give it up. I don't know what to do. That's okay. Okay. Here's what you need to do. If that's you, can you close your eyes for a moment? Just do it, trust me. This isn't like a trust exercise. It's way more scary and way more freeing. Close your eyes, if that's you, and say, Lord Jesus Christ, I'm formally inviting you into that thing. Like right now. In your mind, picture the thing that you did. Take Jesus into that room right now and say, Jesus, I'm opening the door. You are welcome into that experience, into that room, into that moment. And now I need you, Jesus, who's in me through his spirit, to tell me, literally in this moment, what you're saying now over this moment. Here's what he says in Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Be earnest, repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I'll come in and eat with him and him with me. Some of you are sitting here going, John, I don't hear anything. Stop. Ask, pray right now. Lord Jesus Christ, come into this thing. I want to give up or cannot give up. And what do you say? Picture it in your mind. So some of you are confessing sin right now in a very graphic way. Others of you are inviting Jesus into pain and hurt you never thought you would. Some of you are still putting your body against the door so Jesus can't come in. Why are you doing that? Trust him. He's good. He wants to set you free. Here's the last thing. All of us need to ask Jesus to do something in this room in all the rooms that are listening. We need to ask Jesus to break all ungodly sexual ties with people, experiences, and images. So many of us in this room are followers of Jesus and the devil has convinced us for years that we don't need to talk about our past because we're forgiven. Hmm. But here's what's happened. Though you've been forgiven for what happened or you did to someone else or you participated in, actually the bond with that image, that person or that situation, that essence sharing, that one psyche is still alive and well. It's why you can't get over it. It's why you can't get over that person. It's why you don't wanna give up that memory. It's why it never seems to leave you because you have bonding with them, sexually, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. So right now I'm gonna do something. Lord Jesus Christ, who owns this church, send the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Across this whole auditorium, across every important period, everyone watching online. And I would like you, Jesus, in your gentleness, by your Spirit, to bring to mind any person or any experience that still is a bond with anyone in this room. Now, here's what you need to do. Right when that image comes into your head, at this moment, that person, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that thing you did on a Friday night you can't even remember because you were drunk, it doesn't matter. At that moment, here's what you need to pray. Jesus Christ, break that one essence thing between me and that. Start doing it right now. Say, Jesus Christ, in your power, break that. Break that right now. Because what is happening in this room right now is the Lord Jesus is walking through this room and that room and he is literally putting his hands on it and snapping, breaking, cutting all this stuff that should have no power in a Christian's life that still does. But you gotta be willing to give it up. See, some of you are like Egypt. I I don't wanna give it up. You've gotta give it up. You can't use that as an escape anymore. You must ask Jesus to break all of this. And here's the last thing as you're doing this. Some of you are confessing. Some of you are inviting Jesus into those rooms. Others of you have images coming in your mind of people and Jesus is cutting all this stuff. Here's the last thing we find in Scripture. When Jesus begins to do a real work in a church at its foundation, we're not only supposed to confess and share Jesus' work in our life, we're supposed to ask others to do it with us. I want to read this verse to you this morning. Therefore, James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and you pray for each other so you can be what? Healed. For the prayers of righteous people are powerful and effective. So here's what we want to do in this holy moment. Some of us are going to take a week or two to process this. Some of us are going to do this in connect groups. Lots of us are doing it right now. Some of us just want to run from this room. Don't. We're going to take a moment to reflect. So we're going to sing a song here in the north, just in Port Perry, just to give some space. And then afterwards, I'm going to come back and, and we're going to pray, and the host in north is going to do this. And we're going to see how we're going to respond because James 5 says then we, we confess our sins. But for all the work that has been done, let me just pray these things. Jesus, number one, thank you that you are clear about who you are. Thank you for our value. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you that you care for all of us. Number two, thank you that your grace is enough to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There's nothing dirty enough you're not willing to touch and heal. Third, Lord Jesus, I pray you'd begin and continue to do this unbelievable work in our church. That you'd forgive when people have confessed. That you would walk into rooms that people in this room never thought you'd walk into and reorient their thinking that you have now begun to cut all these bonds that never should have been there for years and you're separating it all out. And Lord, for those who are resisting you this morning, have mercy and get them anyway. And for the rest of us, Lord, all of us actually just, we're gonna take this moment to reflect, to sing, and see how how else the Lord wants us to respond. We've prayed for years for revival. We've seen so much amazing work of God in this church. But we did ask for fire to come and we did ask for Jesus to show up no matter the cost. So Lord Jesus, come. Keep meeting us and freeing this church. Amen.